0: chapter 1 this morning, so we're going to consider the sanctity of human life here in this wonderful and familiar passage uh, for you, Genesis 1. You want to follow in the few Bibles, you'll find that on page 1 in your Bible, so that's an easy one to find, Um, so uh, find your way there, and while you're doing, I I must say, um, take a moment. I I had no idea Joshua was going to make uh, uh, such uh, kind remarks and uh, your kind affirmation, and I. I just want to express uh, how happy we are to be here, and uh, uh, as I, I share with you periodically, I, I consider myself, and I know Allegra does as well, we consider ourselves to be members of Hamilton Baptist Church, and then we have ministries in Hamilton Baptist Church. My ministry is uh, pastoring, and, and you have a ministry in Hamilton Baptist Church if you're a member, um, but this is, this, is not, this is not a job for me. This is you, this is my family, this is my home, this is my church, and I'm so thankful that God has uh, led us here. And all those kind things that uh, we're able to, to, that uh, Josh was able to say about me, um, I'm reminded uh, of what I know and, and you don't know, and in, in that you did not experience it. Uh, I didn't quite come to Christ when I was 40, but I was 18 when I came to Christ. And, I, and as I periodically remind you, I know what Stephen pre-Christ was like. And he wasn't a good guy. In any way, and so everything that can be said well of me is because of what Christ has done in my life, and so may He receive all the glory for it. You, yeah, thank you very much. I love you all as well. The um, last thing I'd like to say, uh, switching topics, if you will, I'm, I am excited about our prayer week starting on on Sunday. Um, I do want to let you know that the elders will be calling the church to fast on that following Saturday. So that's, I think, February 1st. We would like you to fast with us on February 1st and be in prayer on that Saturday. We're going to meet here at 4 o'clock Saturday afternoon, and we're going to pray in particular over people in our church who are struggling with various issues. And then at 5.30, when our prayer gathering is over, we're going to break our fast together and, uh, and enjoy uh, breaking bread together. So I do hope you'll be able to participate in that important day in our church. So here we are in Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 26. Hear now the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and this opportunity to consider uh, really the pinnacle of your creation, that of human life. We pray that we would... Our hearts would line up with uh, your heart when it comes to the sanctity and the sacredness of the life uh, that we live, uh, human lives as we see here, even in your word. So guide us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. It was in uh, the year 1945 when private um, first class medic Desmond Doss struggled through the pain to clear his mind and to reconcile himself to his surroundings. He was on a hospital ship just off the coast of Okinawa, where every inch of his lean frame hurt. He was covered in bandages with a compound fracture in one arm. As the fog cleared his mind, he thought of his Bible, the one his wife had presented to him on their wedding day, the Bible that had been his constant source of comfort and companionship through the months of combat on the island of Guam. He slowly reached into his shirt pocket where he had carried it, but the Bible was gone, lost somewhere on top of the Maeda Escarpment, beside the blood he spilled on that battlefield. Please, he begged. Somebody nearby, get word back to my men. I've lost my Bible. It had been since about a month since he lost that Bible, for it was on April 29th in 1945 when Company B first launched an assault on the Japanese fortress. Three days after the initial assault, Medic Doss braved a hail of enemy rifle and mortar fire to rush 200 yards to rescue a wounded soldier. Two days later, four soldiers who were assaulting an enemy gun emplacement fell. Doss ignored the rain of enemy grenades around him to rush to their aid, making four separate trips to rescue the wounded. Yet his real heroics began on May 5th. When the tide of the battle turned against the Americans, in the midst of enemy artillery, mortars, machine gun, as Japanese soldiers swarmed out of their foxholes and caves in every direction, almost immediately 75 American soldiers fell. The remaining men were forced to retreat down the mountain, surrendering the territory that they had taken in the previous week. The only soldiers remaining on top of the cliff were the wounded, the Japanese, and Private First Class Desmond Doss. Heedless of the shells that burst around him and the bullets directed his way, Doss tended to his injured comrades. At the base of the cliff, those few soldiers who managed to escape the onslaught can only sit helplessly by and listen to the sounds of battle that that waged above. They struggled to survive. And then amazingly, a wounded soldier appeared over the face of the cliff, dangling from a rope as he was slowly descended to safety. And then another, and another, and another. Heedless of the advancing Japanese, Private Doss went about the work of sending the wounded to safety. Reports of that day tell that the Japanese would advance with their rifles and bayonets, even within a few yards of the medic, slowly lowering the men to safety before one of the wounded Americans would would shoot out to send the Japanese away. For five hours, Doss lowered soldier after soldier down the face of the cliff, using little more than a tree stump to wind the rope around. Throughout the five-hour ordeal, Doss had one thought. A thought he prayed over and over and over again. Lord, help me get one more, just one more. Two weeks later, on May 21st, the Americans launched another attack. When they were forced to retreat, Medic Doss remained in the open field to treat the wounded. Then he and three other soldiers crawled into a hole to wait out the darkness. Suddenly, a grenade landed among them, and as the three men attempted to scramble out of the hole, Doss immediately covered the grenade with his boot and then felt it detonate beneath him his body being hurled into the darkness of the night. When he fell back to earth, he was bleeding profusely from numerous wounds, but rather than calling for another medic to leave the shelter to risk his own life, Doss bandaged his own wounds and waited for hours until daylight broke. As the medics arrived with dawn to carry the the wounded uh, private out of danger, they passed by another critically wounded soldier, at which Doss instructed them to put down his litter, then rolled off of it, and told them to take the other man. While he waited their return, he was joined by yet another wounded soldier. Together, the two of them set out for safety, leaning upon each other. Once again, rifle fire split the morning. Payne stabbed Doss in the arm, which was curled around the shoulders of his new comrade. The sniper bullet went into his wrist, exited his elbow, and then lodged itself in his upper arm. Had not the bullet hit Doss, it probably would have struck his wounded compatriot in the neck. Doss borrowed his friend's rifle and used it to fashion a stock for his now useless arm as he eventually crawled to safety. How many men did Private First Class Desmond Doss save? Only God knows. The army determined he saved 100 lives. Doss disagreed. It couldn't have been more than 50, he said. In deference to Desmond's Humble estimate, when receiving his Congressional Medal of Honor, they split the difference, crediting the intrepid soldier with saving 75 fellow Americans. Why do men risk their lives for other people? And why do we, as a culture, I think as a race, honor such people? Why do we give them our highest awards? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Because of the sanctity of human life. Human life is sacred. We think about the greatest moments in the history of of humanity, and most of them are surrounded uh, around the sanctity of human life. We think of our own Declaration of Independence, in which the, the base. Presupposition is the assertion that all men are created equal, that there is value and dignity given to them. We think of those who go out to rescue in the midst of natural disaster. You might think of a helicopter crew braving 100 mile an hour winds in a hurricane and they go out to sea to rescue people on a boat. They don't go to rescue the boat. They go to rescue the people on the boat because we understand, don't we, that human life is more valuable than human property. You think about people who run into burning buildings, not to put the fire out, but to get the people out of that building. You think about doctors who will go to faraway countries to to help strangers they've never met who might be suffering with, with Ebola or some other contagious disease, putting their own lives at risk to help people that they never knew. About the emergency room and what great lengths we go to keep a person alive. Dear friends of ours uh, just south of here just had their first baby, born 25 weeks after conception. Little Avery's now been uh, two weeks. Old and he's doing well, but the extent of treatment this little child is receiving boggles the mind as they work day and night to keep this little one alive. You see, the magnitude of the effort and the willingness of our sacrifice is a testimony, is it not, to the sanctity of human life? Or you could consider the opposite. The darkest moments of history are assaults on human life, whether it be gang violence in an inner city or the senseless loss of a passenger plane flying over Iran just a few days ago. You, you go down to D.C. and you go to the Holocaust Museum and you will be assaulted with the senselessness and the tragedy of the loss of so many lives. You go down to the new lynching museums in Alabama and you'll feel the same uh, tension in your heart. I think about my own uh, 20 years plus years in pastoral ministry. I think of the greatest um, times of tragedy in my own life is when I, I buried a, a child uh, who lived yet just three hours, or I, I went on uh, and buried a child who had lived just but six years, or buried a, a mom killed in a, a single mom killed in a senseless car accident, leaving her seven year old uh, a, a, an orphan. And these are, are times of great sadness and great, uh, great hardship precisely because human life is more valuable than anything on this earth. That's obvious to everyone, isn't it? Well, I'm afraid it's not. I'm afraid this is something we cannot all agree on. For even this last year, 800,000 Americans lost their lives to the scourge of abortion. This Wednesday will mark the 46th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, which declared that a woman has a constitutional right to an abortion. And so many people of faith, uh, this church in particular, uh, recognizes every third Sunday in January as the sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We dedicate uh, this Sunday to declaring once again what seems to be under assault in our culture that human life is sacred, particularly when it applies to abortion. Because it's easy to forget about abortion. Abortion is out of sight; it's tucked away, but it is not rare. There has been, listen, sixty million abortions in America over the last forty-six years. Sixty million. It's an issue that continues to to invade our land, and it is an issue that will not go away. As you know, I don't know if you had the misfortune to watch the Golden Globes just recently. Um, I, I thankfully did not, but I did catch the headlines. And the headlines was not about who won what. If you caught the headlines, you, you saw that what everyone was talking about was the, uh, the, the speech that Michelle Williams gave, who evidently won an award for her acting ability. Williams said, and I quote her, when you put this in someone's hand, I, I don't know if it's a gold man or whatever it is, she's speaking of the award, right? I got this award. When you put this in someone's hand, you're acknowledging the choices they make as an actor, moment by moment, scene by scene, day by day. But, said Williams, you're also acknowledging the choices they make as persons, the education they pursued, the training they sought, the hours they put in, right? So in other words, you say when you give someone an award, you're not just acknowledging their their acting, you're acknowledging them as a person and all that they've done in order to come to this point in their life. As she repeatedly uses the word choice, the choices that they make to get to this position. And then she finally gets to the point when she says, I'm grateful for uh, the acknowledgement of the choices that I've made, and I'm also grateful to have lived in a moment in our society where choice exists. Because I would not have been able to do this, that is, win this award, without employing a woman's right to choose. As it turns out, the whole speech is about abortion. And what she is very clearly saying is that her career success is dependent on the fact that she has had at least one abortion. Notice, by the way, that she speaks of it in terms of choice. She never has the courage to use the word abortion. Just one of the many choices. Like choices of education, choices of how to play out this scene, choices of what to do with this child in my womb. They're all just just choices that she's made, and her abortion was just one of many choices that enabled her to get to a place where she is honored for her acting. And what this does, this is a very helpful speech, I think, in that it shows us the alternative worldview, where life is not sacred, but self-expression is self-identification is, self-determination is, or to use Williams' word, choice is. Let's be clear, though. She is speaking of the intentional destruction of a human baby, her baby. And she declares it was a needed sacrifice in order to get where she is today. That, to me, is a popular view that we are surrounded with, and one that is absolutely contrary to the Bible. When Scripture comes and clearly affirms this, the, that human life is sacred, and so we shall consider the biblical teaching today about the sanctity of human life, and in particular, and how it applies to the scourge of abortion. And before we do, I, I do want to mention that um, today uh, I, I preach this sermon as a Christian, and as a Christian, I am a sinful man forgiven by grace. And you as a Christian are a sinful person forgiven by grace. 10% of abortions in America are, uh, occur among those who identify themselves as born-again Christians. Alongside those women are our dads who have encouraged abortion, our parents who have supported abortion, our friends who have counseled abortion, and many, even as Nikki has just testified, um, there is guilt often that is associated with that. We carry that, those scars and that baggage around. And so in light of that, we need to recognize and affirm before we even begin in exploring the sanctity of human life this morning that God forgives completely. Amen. He forgives entirely entirely. And we could look at many, many scriptures, could we not? But just consider Isaiah 43, for instance. And when God says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember your sins. What is it? No more. No more. And so I stand on the authority of God's Word this morning and say to any follower of Christ who carries the guilt of abortion, Christ has endured the penalty for your sins. And therefore, the filter of everything you hear today should be the word of God to you. My daughter, my son, I remember your sins no more. The gospel, in other words, is the best news in the world for those to condemn themselves for an abortion. The gospels where we see the great lengths in which God will go to redeem humans because human life is sacred. And note five po- points this morning, why human life is sacred from God's word. I, I will let you know my, my first point will take as long as my, um, the, the next four combined. For those of you keeping time all right, this morning, uh, you will be uh, relieved to hear that. All right, number one, human life is sacred because humans are uniquely created by God. If Genesis 1 teaches us anything, it teaches us that all, all things owe their existence to God. God is the creator, in particular human life. For Notice in verse 26 we read, And God said, Let... Uh, and then God said, "Let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness." So He, "We're going to make man." And then you see, uh, after the deliberation within the Godhead, in verse 26, God gets around to it, verse 27. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, He created them. And This is not the only place, of course, where we see that God is the author of human life, the creator of human life. It's found throughout Scripture. We see it here in the beginning. You go to the end, you read Revelation 4, for instance, when Scripture says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. This is particularly applied to Jesus in John's prologue in chapter 1 and verse 3. All things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Bible affirms God creates all things, including human life, and yet there seems to be a uniqueness when it comes to the creation of human life. In fact, if we don't have time to look uh, look at this, but if you look at Genesis, those of you are familiar with chapter one, which most of you are, aren't you? We we see God creating when God says, "Let there be light," and there was light. Let there be an expanse, and it was so, let there be, let there be, let there be. I think it's like eight times God creates by just simply declaring, by fiat, let there be. But when we arrive at creation, you see the pattern is broken. We read in verse 26 again, God God said, let us make man in our own image. Not let there be, but let us make. And we see that God is uh, even uh, deciding about the creation. He's deliberating, as I, as I mentioned, within the triune Godhead. He's talking uh, to, amongst himself about this creation. So we see his personal involvement, his special involvement. So we might say all things are created by God, but human life is a special, includes a special divine involvement in that creation. And if you want to see this uh, even more clearly, just turn over to Genesis 2. Up to this point, God has spoken everything into creation, but we find in verse 7 of Genesis 2, uh, this familiar passage. "Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And you notice the, that God gets his hands dirty when it comes to creating us, as it were. He, he, he breathed into his nostrils, it's a very special personal involvement, a very unique aspect of creation. Uh, There in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, of course. Now, his creative act uh, no longer takes place in the earth, does it? It takes place now within a, a mother's womb. And we see Scripture repeatedly affirm this. Job 31, for instance, says, He who made me in the womb. Or Psalm 139, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, the psalmist says, The way that God creates human life, The way that God creates babies compels us to praise him, right? And so God God creates every human life and, and every human life therefore ought to be Praise-inducing and, and wonder-evoking that God could do such a thing. That, that all of life is made by God. All of human life is formed within the womb. Certainly, mothers contribute an impersonal egg and a father contributes impersonal sperm. But it is God who creates the person, the Bible tells us. A person who has both body and soul. A person who shall, as Scripture teaches, live forever. He alone is able to do this. He alone knows the depths and the mystery of what it's like in the creation of a person. Now, you might, you might say, okay, well, I, I grant that God creates people, but the question then rises, at what point is God? Is there human life? At what point is there a human person? Is is it a human person at birth? Or is it a human person at conception? Or is it a human person somewhere in between? This, to me, is the central question when it comes to abortion. When, when when, when, When is a person there? Every argument, I think, in abortion comes down to this. Because, of course, we have heard about a woman's right to privacy. Their right to their own bodies, right to their own decision. And that's a right in which I, I, would, I will affirm as much as any. I do think we have a right to privacy. And if the preborn is a mass of cells, then certainly this is a private decision. It would be like removing a benign tumor. And it would be utterly absurd for Congress or a judge or anyone else to say, you, tell you what you can and cannot do with your tumor. And you would rightly say, get your hands off my body. But if the preborn is a human being, my friends, it's no longer a private decision. It's no longer about your body. It's about another human person. Right? We all have a right to privacy, certainly. But we also have laws that invade our privacy when we begin to harm another person. I certainly have experienced this as a foster father, a child who, was, who uh, uh, the government violated a, someone's privacy in order to rescue a child from dangerous neglect, and we think that is right and good. See, privacy is not the issue. It's not about privacy. It's about what is in the womb, and the Bible, my friends, have answered this question thousands of years ago. Biblically, we know the preborn are children. We saw just a couple of weeks ago in our study of Genesis Remember Rebecca's pregnancy when we saw the the scripture says the children, and that's just the ordinary word for children, struggle together within her. Or perhaps you read a month earlier in that, in the nativity of uh, stories, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 43, when Elizabeth says to Mary, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Right? Mary is already a mother. Now what makes a mother? What do you have to have to be a mother? A child. And we know from the timeline that Mary is probably around a week past conception. Not only are are, our children uh, in the womb called children in the Bible, they act like children. Elizabeth will go on to say to Mary, the baby in my womb, speaking of John now, who's about six months after conception, leapt for joy. Joy, of course, is not something that a a mass of cells has. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, again speaking of John, the scripture tells us, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Or in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We see the preborn act like children. We also know that the Bible tells us that God loves the preborn. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 1, before you were born, I consecrated you. In other words, Jeremiah, you're not an accident. And Jeremiah, you, you weren't some biomass. From the moment of conception, a holy and all powerful God made and loved Jeremiah. The scripture's clear. The womb contains a person, a human being. And I I say humbly, but with full conviction, you cannot believe God's word and deny that. The Bible, it's not not one of these gray areas. This is very, very clear what the Bible teaches us. And what the Bible has told us for thousands of years, I would suggest that science has actually caught up. Right? Scienti- not only biblically do we know the preborn or children, scientifically we know as well. We have ultrasounds and microscopic cameras that can take us into the womb. We can now see only what God was able to, to, to see before, a baby being formed in the womb. We now know that, that 18 days after conception, the heart is beating, right? before most women even know they're pregnant. We know six weeks after conception, the brain is working, the skeleton is complete, the child has reflexes. Eight weeks after conception, we, find, we see personality in the, in the child. The baby sucks her thumbs. she grabs her foot. Uh, all the bodily systems at this time are present. By 10 weeks, the, the, the baby squints, swallows, makes a fist, recoils from pain. At 12 weeks, all the systems in the body are now working on their own, and we have pictures of the baby even smiling. I, in fact, I think the description of an eight-week-old baby by Dr. Paul Rockwell of Troy, New York, is helpful when we think about the scientific evidence for the uh, human uh, life in the pre-born. He says, while I was giving an antiseptic for a ruptured ectopic pregnancy at two months' gestation, I was handed what I believe was the smallest living human ever seen. Within the sack was a tiny human male swimming extremely vigorously in the amniotic fluid. This tiny human was perfectly developed with long, tapering fingers, feet and toes. He was almost transparent as regards to the skin, and delicate arteries and veins were prominent to the ends of the fingers. This is eight weeks after conception. The baby was extremely alive and swam around the sack approximately once per second with a natural swimmer's stroke. It's my opinion, he says, that if lawmakers and people realize that very vigorous life is present it is possible that abortion would be found more objectionable than euthanasia we know scientifically that the preborn are children we even know it uh, somewhat ironically and sadly legally as a culture we do that is if you commit a violent crime and kill a preborn baby uh, you 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 will be charged with homicide these are called fetal homicide laws they're in 37 states now what is homicide homicide is the killing of a person it is not the killing of a subperson. It is not the killing of a, a, a mass of cells. And so we as a culture, we legally protect the unborn as persons unless the mother doesn't want us to. It doesn't make sense to me, I'm afraid. That it, we, we say it's homicide to kill a fetus intentionally, except in the case of abortion. See, the difference isn't the personality of the child, the humanity of the child, the difference is the desire of the mother. And I don't think that's good grounds for determining this, uh, the rights of another individual. And let me just say lastly, uh, as we close this point, you know, we even get beyond the science and the laws and even Scripture, I think even in our hearts, and perhaps I'm naive in saying so, but I think in our hearts intuitively we know what the, that in, our, in the womb of a mother is a child. Scripture tells us in Isaiah 49, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is no, she can't. And what, those, what the Bible's getting at is that there is a motherly instinct that God has given in mothers to care for their children. This is why, uh, and I think Nikki even testified to this, why so many post-abortive women carry great emotional scars. Uh, consider this testimony. Though I would march myself into blisters for a woman's right to exercise the option of motherhood, I discovered there in the waiting room, that I was not the the modern woman I thought I was. When my name was called, my body felt so heavy, the nurse had to help me into the examining room. I waited for my husband to burst through the door and yell, Stop! But of course he didn't. I concentrated on three black spots in the acoustic ceiling until they grew in size to the shape of saucers while the doctor swabbed my insides with antiseptic. You're going to feel a burning sensation now, he said, injecting Novocaine into the neck of the womb. The pain was swift and severe. I twisted to get away from him. He was hurting my baby, I reasoned. Stop, I cried. Please stop. He shook his head, busy with his equipment. It's too late to stop now, he said. It'll just take a few more seconds. Physically, the pain passed even before the hum in the machine signals that the vacuuming of my uterus was complete. Ten minutes from start to finish, and I was back on the arm of a nurse. There were 12 beds in the recovery room. Each one had a gaily flowered draw sheet and a soft green or blue thermal blanket. It was all very feminine. Lying on these beds for an hour or more were shocked victims. Their full wombs now stripped clean. Their futures less encumbered. My husband and I are back to planning our summer vacation and his career switch. It certainly does make more sense not to be having a baby right now, we say to each other all the time. But I have this ghost now, a very little ghost that only appears when I see something beautiful like a full moon on the ocean last weekend, and the baby waves at me, and I wave at the baby. Of course we have room. I cried to the ghost. Of course we do. Why so sad? Why seeing a very little ghost when one sees something beautiful? Well, it is because abortion is not, despite the language, simply a termination of a pregnancy, but of a baby. This is why there's a clinical disorder called post-abortion stress syndrome. It's why women who have had an abortion are four times more likely to commit suicide. Because a mother has a God-given natural desire to mother their child. They know intuitively what we all know legally and scientifically and yes biblically, that the pre-born is a child uniquely created by God. Secondly, human life is sacred because humans are created in God's image. You see this here, of course, in In verse 26, once again, let us make man in our own image, God says. And then in verse 27, we see the fulfillment of that deliberation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are not simply made by God. We are created in God's image. That is, we are, according to uh, verse 27, we are like God. We are like God. Now, there's been great debate over millennia. What does that mean, that we're like God? Some suggest it's because we have a soul. Some suggest it's because we'll exist forever. Some suggest it's because we alone, of all creation, can appreciate God's majesty and worship Him personally and enter into a relationship with that God. Whatever it means, it is clear that we are like God, and therefore we are unique in this way. We are not like lizards. We are not like frogs. We're not even like primates. We alone are created in God's image. And therefore, human life is sacred. All of human life has value, dignity, and worth. Every single human person, regardless of their stage of development, regardless of their abilities, are made in God's image. And so God will get to Genesis chapter 9, and speaking to Noah, he will institute capital punishment when he says, listen to these words, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God made man in his own image. So you might ask, why, why are we not allowed to kill humans? I mean, we, we kill mosquitoes, right? We, we kill cows and chickens and pigs all the time. Why is it that we're, we shouldn't do that to one another? Well, the Bible says we should not precisely because we are made in God's image. In fact, God says you forfeit your own life when you murder God's image bearer as he wants to emphasize how valuable human life is. In other words, the basis for human rights has been for hundreds of years in the Western culture rooted in this belief that we are made in God's image, sometimes called the imago Day, that we bear the image of God. So the question then I think needs to rise in our minds if we remove that basis for human worth that we're made in God's image, what other option do we have to defend human rights? Right? If our culture begins to deny God and therefore deny that we are a special creation of God, made in his image, instead that we are uh, uh, evolved from primates, instead that we are simply complex organisms, we're just molecules in motion, we're just uh, accidents of time and chance, then what do we base human rights on? What makes a human worthy of protection? What gives a human dignity? The only other option is our capabilities. And so the, the, the arguments that are being made On the other side, we protect human life because of human life's capacity. They have the capacity to reason, capacity of self-awareness, capacity to make moral choices. And because they have these capacities, therefore they are worthy of rights. And so the reasoning goes, the life in the womb doesn't have these capacities. Uh, A a child in a room cannot make a moral decision, cannot reason, uh, is perhaps not self-aware. And so no capacities, therefore they have no rights. The problem with that argument is it doesn't stop at birth you got a one-week-old baby, and they're not making moral decisions either. They're not reasoning things out either. And it doesn't stop when you come to disabled individuals. And it doesn't stop when people sadly uh, enter their senior years and suffer with uh, senility and dementia. And they lose these capabilities. See, if you can't protect the pre-born, then you can't protect the newly born in this worldview. You can't protect the disabled. You can't protect the elderly. And this is just not a hypothetical this has actually happened. You think about, the, for instance, the, the age in which the church uh, uh, came, came onto the scene in the midst of the Roman Empire. They, at that time, rooted human rights in human capacity. Abortion, therefore, was, was something that occurred at that time. Way back in the first century, but far more than abortion was infanticide, especially of girls where you take a girl, a little newborn, and you don't want her and you just leave her out in the trash heap and they're there to die. That's, that's called exposure. You leave them out to exposure. And this is what they would do in this culture. Why? Because that child has no capacity and therefore no rights to life. And, and they would do this you, you, uh, for the, uh, the elderly, the infirm, the poor. There was no, no special care for them whatsoever. The, the great uh, Aristotle, the great Greek thinker, uh, encapsula- encapsulates this idea when he says, some races don't have the capacity for higher reason, therefore they deserve to be slaves. Right? That's the mentality. You don't have the capacity, and therefore you don't have the rights. And so we as Christians, please don't misunderstand me. We shouldn't be just simply one issue people right we should be uh, uh, standing up for the sanctity of all human lives like last year at this time we we didn't focus on abortion we focused on orphans and we should not only care for orphans and 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 the preborn, for, but for the poor and the women and and widows just as the early church did and they would go out and they would adopt these children and bring them in their home adoption was pervasive in the early church why because they believed were created in god's image We're like God, and therefore all of human life is valuable, right? If you believe in the Imago Dei, the circles of protected life expands because all human life, not just the capable, are sacred. Third, human life is sacred because we are given authority over creation, Given authority over creation, day one through six in Genesis one, you see that God is shaping the world as he's preparing for the, for the last act of creation, that of human life. And what does he say there in verse 28? And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. So God creates man and says, now look, all this creation is yours to rule. Right? As God's image bears, we subdue and rule just as God does with the sea and the air and the ground, he says. And my point is that humans have a clear superiority, according to Scripture, over all creation. Creation is God's gift to us. And therefore, human life is sacred. Even as Jesus would say in Matthew 10, you are of more value than many sparrows. Or Matthew 12, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. Fourth, human life is sacred because humans are blessed by God to have children. It's the clear teaching of verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply. Right? Those two go together. What is the blessing? God blessed them. What is that? Well, in part, it's the ability to have children. Right? So blessing and children go together. I don't know if you heard that around here before, but it, children are a blessing. And you see how these two are ruptured with abortion. That not not blessing in children, but the child is a cost, the child is an encumbrance, the child is an interruption, the child is a burden. And therefore we should terminate it, is the mentality. When scripture comes, for instance, and says in Psalm 127, that behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb is his reward. And again in verse 5, blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And so children are a blessing of God according to scripture and therefore should be valued and esteemed. Lastly, consider that human life is sacred because Jesus became a human to save humans. And it's here we would consider Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read it for you for time's sake. Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, isn't that interesting that we are made in the likeness of whom? In God. And now Christ is being made in the likeness of men, of humans. And being found in human form, we continue, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus came into this world and didn't come as, a, as an eagle. Didn't come as a horse. right? Not even, not, didn't, didn't come even as an angel but came as a human. Why? To save humans. To save us. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. Because he values human life. And so He comes and stands in our place and takes all of our sin upon Himself. All of it. Every single sin that a Christian would commit. Every single Christian, every sin you have committed, are committing, will commit. If you are in Christ, Jesus has taken the punishment for that in the cross. That is the very center, the very heart of the Christian faith. And so we rejoice in Paul's writings in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now, what is it? No condemnation. Can you say that with me? There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There is none. I don't care what you've done. And so I repeat from where I started, the gospel is the best news in the world. For those who have condemned themselves for having participated in an abortion. That mercy is offered to you even now. I know Josh even began our service praying that there might be one here who's exploring Christianity, considering what it's all about. Please understand that God offers grace. Grace. You don't make your way to God through your works, through your efforts, through your goodness. God actually comes to save sinful people by sending his son to be a human, live in our place, to accumulate a perfect record for us, and then die on the cross to pay our punishment. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. And now the Bible declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all you have to do is surrender your life to Christ in faith. You receive his forgiveness. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, blink at, uh, sweep it on the rug or wink at it. He forgives it. I love the story with Jesus in Luke 7 with the woman at the well, and uh, a very scandalous woman indeed. And Jesus declares, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then he goes on and says something we all should hold dear in our heart. Those who have been forgiven much will love much well if you have been forgiven and you have been if you're a sinner you ought to love jesus greatly and i think post-abortive men and women should love him greatly as well do you love him have you been saved by him he would wash you clean even now i think as, even as we think about application as we end our time this morning I, w- I would suggest that the greatest application we all could do would be believe the gospel That we simply believe the gospel, that sin is a crushing burden, and Christ has come to take that off of us, and that we might believe it every day of our lives. But beyond that, as it pertains to abortion, we ought to hate abortion. We ought to hate that babies are dying, that mothers are being scarred, that men are being corrupted, that doctors are being hardened, and the image of God is being assaulted. Third, we ought never to get an abortion. As I mentioned earlier, many who claim to be born a Christians do. In fact, 100,000 babies are boarded each year in America by women who claim to be born again Christians. I think, why? How is that possible? I think perhaps it might be because of the greater shame that is associated for sexual sin upon those in the Christian community. And therefore a desire to hide it. This is why I tell my girls periodically the opposite of what Nikki testified in one of her examples. I tell my girls, listen, if you ever end up pregnant outside of marriage, your daddy will be crushed. It will be very, very hard for daddy. But I will never turn my back on you. You are my daughter, and I will walk with you through any sin that you happen to commit. And I will always be with you. Our girls need to hear that, right? You say, well, Pastor, why do you preach a sermon like this every 3rd January? Right we already all believe this. And I get that. But let's let's not be naive that that sometime in someone's future, you're going to be involved in a situation like that. Whether it's you who are pregnant, whether it's your daughter, whether it's a friend, whether it's a niece or someone. And I want this just to be rooted so firm in your life, in your heart, that at that time, there will be no wavering in us. That we might speak for life, we might even protect life, that one might live and follow Christ because of our convictions. And so a believer should never get an abortion. forth. We should persuade others concerning abortion. I do not think we should be silent on this issue. You know, I don't like to put my feet into politics, uh, but this is not a political issue in my mind at all. This has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with believing the Scripture, and I think the world needs us. Fifth, we should support alternatives to abortion. That's why I'm excited that Nikki's here uh, representing Mosaic. I think we should continue to partner for the gospel with Mosaic. I think we should do this as a church, as we do, but as individuals within this church, whether we're using our money, whether we're using our time, our prayers. I know many of you uh, continue to volunteer in this ministry as we seek to care for men and women in, in, in the midst of crisis pregnancies, unplanned pregnancies, and we should support that. Moreover, we should support adoption. And I, I'm just uh, thrilled that to be part of a church that there are so many adoptive families um, and that many of you have invited people into your home that were, that were not born to you but born to someone else and said, you could, you could be part of my family. I'll be your daddy and I'll be your mom and your, your brother and sister. And I think that's just a beautiful picture of, of uh, the, the Bible's affirmation of God's gospel and God's uh, uh, value of human life. I do want to let you know that we have a very, as a church, we value this so much. We have a very generous scholarship for those who are interested, uh, perhaps in adding to their family through adoption. See, adoption's so expensive, and it is. This church will walk alongside with you, even in those financial issues, to help you uh, be able to pursue this ministry. And let me say, six, and lastly, uh, we should seek legal protection for the preborn. I do believe we have democratic privileges of free speech and representation and demonstration. Um, and I think we should use those freedoms to pr- protect those who can't speak for themselves. And, and, uh, and, of course, we've been at this for 46 years now, haven't we? And, and you might think, well, this ain't ever going to change, right? And sometimes I feel like we're the spies who go into to the land of Canaan, and we come out and say, listen, we're just like grasshoppers to them. I mean, they're huge. I mean, they got Hollywood, right? they got, they, got, they got the universities, they have all, all kind of the, the, the cultural levers. They have it all. What are we going to do? You know, 160 years ago, in this fair land of ours, there was no consensus whether an African was a person or property. Right? That went on for hundreds of years. And now we look at such things, and our mind is, is, is in, in, unable to comprehend how, how blind they actually were. My hope and prayer is that one day we will look on abortion in the same way. And so let us persevere through the grace of God that we might speak for the sanctity of human life. Our Father, we are thankful for your encouragements in your word. And we're thankful that you have put us in this land at this time. And I believe to make an impact to speak up for... Human life. Of course, today we considered the preborn, but as we've already established, it also has to do with the poor, doesn't it? And the disadvantaged, and the widows, and many, many others, the disabled. Father, let us be people who value human life, and not just in our hearts and our words, but in our actions and, and um, in the opportunities you give us. For Christ has come to save us, save humans. And so, Father, we pray, in particular, for our land. That one day, one day soon, through your grace and through working through your people, that the scourge of abortion will be swept clean from this country of ours. Not just this country, but even throughout the world. You, Father, will you begin to redeem and grow your church and empower your church to do what needs to be done even as we ask for you to do this great work, that you might, Father, advance this cause, even as you advance your gospel, even as people come to faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he is a gracious, forgiving redeemer who will wash all our sins clean. We thank you for that grace, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.